Well, welcome to our, our first installment, lesson, class, whatever we want to call this, of, I've, I've entitled this series, Parent and Child Training, and that's intentional, uh, because if you've been at this very long, if you've been a parent for more than, I don't know, 24 hours, you realize that the Lord is training you along with your children, correct? I want to run by just a, a little bit of a brief, I sent out by email, what I, what I hope ends up being the syllabus, uh, sort of more or less for the class. Uh, eight lessons is what I've planned. I sent out a description of that. If you didn't get that, let me know, and I can, I can resend it. But I want to talk a little bit just about some of the structure and, and maybe what I want to call the tenor or the tone of, of the class. I really want this to be more workshop than lecture hall. I want this to be somewhat interactive. And, and to that end, what I'm going to do at the beginning of each session is pose some questions to you and let's consider some answers and then I will address the topic in, in somewhat of a lecture format briefly and then we can work perhaps to refine some of those answers. What I want to look at today <clears throat> is what are the motivations for us as a Christian parent? And if you looked at the the descriptions of the classes that I sent, eight of them, you'll notice, and some of you may not have been comforted by this, we don't really get to some of the more practical things until the fifth session. And some of you, I've talked to some of you, and you're thinking, well, I want that earlier. Uh, I need help now with some very practical things to help with our kids. But I think it's important for us to lay a doctrinal foundation first. I think the practical tools, number one, we'll be, we'll, we will be able more accurately to define those things, but also we'll be able better to use them. I had an opportunity, I've used this, this illustration before, but I had an opportunity several years ago to take a woodworking class, and this was from a very traditional woodworking school. Uh, they offer a two to three year apprenticeship, and new craftsmen in this kind of training program they work alongside a master for two to three years, and their very first assignment, their very first task that they actually build on their own, design and build, you want to take a guess what they build? A tool chest. But it's not until they've been at it for a couple of years that they have the wherewithal to know what they need to do, what they need to design, and what kinds of tools they prefer to use, and how they want to use them, so they're kind of their workflow. In a sense, what I want to do is build us, help build a tool chest or get the principles in place before we actually build the cabinet. Does that make sense? So here's what I want to recommend. <clears throat> we, my goal is to keep, especially these in-person ones, to be right at an hour, no more than an hour and 15, which means Sometimes we'll have to cut short the Q&A time questions, but write them down because when we get to the Zoom, hopefully we'll have some more flexibility and a little bit longer time. If we need to spend more time in that, that format, we can. Some resources I recommend to you uh, as we're thinking about the topic of parenting and child training. Some resources I recommend. Number one, and this is going to sound maybe silly or, or even maybe facetious, the whole Bible. And what I mean by that is that there's a temptation to go to a concordance and look for passages that mention children and deal with the, the children passages or mention the parents. But 
condition yourself, train yourself in your family worship, in your own Bible reading. Think intentionally about how do these things, the truth that I'm reading in God's Word, how do those things apply to, my, to me as a parent? How do they apply to my children? How do they apply to our family bonds and relationships? But then as we get a little bit more specifically, the book of Proverbs, the whole book of Proverbs, just read it over and over and over again, and you will find literally the wisdom of God in printed form for you. These are not cliches. These are not things just to put on a bumper sticker. They are our, our, our life and our wisdom. But in terms of also some more specific resources to take the wisdom of God and sort of distill those things down into more usable form maybe, uh, or, or, or I shouldn't say that, uh, a more condensed form, there's a couple of books that I'd recommend to you. You can go, if, if we still had Christian bookstores around, we don't have brick and mortar much anymore, but if you could go to the parenting section at a Christian bookstore, you would be overwhelmed with the number of choices, most of which are really, really poor most of which have a wrong view of God and man. But there are some helpful ones, and, and some that you've, we've probably got on our shelf in there, in the Fellowship Hall, our library, uh, others that you've probably got on your shelf. But a couple that I've, I'm going to lean on and I think are helpful to you, one is by an author named Bruce Ray, Withhold Not Correction. Uh, it's a Reformed Baptist guy out of the Pacific Northwest. He is in um, Kirkland, Washington. It, it's a, a helpful book. The other one is by J.C. Ryle. It's called The Duties of Parents. Um, Ryle's book is, is even shorter. I think it's subtitled Seven Practical Things for Parents or something like that. Kindle has it for 99 cents. Uh, you can get the printed copy for 5 or $6. But I just, in fact, Pastor Todd told me that there's a free audiobook version of that on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube and type in J.C. Ryle, Duties of Parents, and I think it's an hour and a half or so. It's not even a long listen. But I would commend that to you. It's going to be very helpful. You'll hear me quote a couple of times from that book today. Now, I want to say, again, I'm, by way of introduction to the, to the overall topic, I want to say something else of kind of what we're not going to do in the class or what I don't intend to do. My intention is not to pigeonhole you or to run you into a, a funnel of some kind where you have a specific, or I'm going to promote a specific educational model or a philosophy of education or something like that. That's not my desire at all. Um, nor is it to undermine the liberty of conscience from one family to another. You as parents, even within a close community of faith, even within a, a church body that holds to the same confession, you may come to different convictions and different practices with respect to your parenting. That may be perfectly fine. It may not be if your convictions are not consistent with the Scriptures. But we, we want to look at what the Scriptures say we must do as parents, what kinds of prohibitions do we find, and then how do we live among one another when we discover differences, uh, particularly as the kids get older and maybe entertainment choices, or sports or no sports, or educational models, this curriculum or that curriculum, or this practice or, or, or some other practice. And how do we live as a community of faith when families make different choices while still applying the same biblical principles? So I want to make that as an emphasis as we go through. But here's a question <clears throat> that I want us to consider before... Um, in these first several sessions, 
is why is it important to establish a doctrinal framework? Why is it important to emphasize some doctrinal things first before we jump to the strategies or tactics of parenting? And here's the answer in part. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul has spent, you know, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans laying out the glories of the gospel from eternity up until the very present moment. And Paul begins chapter 12 with a therefore statement. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, in light of all that God has done from eternity through the person of Jesus Christ on behalf of all of those that he has elected to life in himself, Paul says, I make that appeal that you offer everything that you are. When Paul says, offer your bodies, he's not limited that to your physical flesh. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable response. Then he says something very interesting. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For... Verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When Paul says in verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, we mentioned this in Sunday school this morning in, in a little bit different context, Paul is not presenting to us a possibility or a potentiality, or a hypothetical situation. He's not saying, Christians, if you don't carefully watch yourself, you might accidentally, potentially, maybe become conformed to the world. Paul's saying this is our default position for every one of us. This is our default position. What's the remedy? The renewing of your minds, and Paul's going to work this out by word and spirit. So with respect to parenting, remember, the whole Bible is our, our textbook for parenting, not just the parenting verses. Romans 12, 1 through 5 are parenting verses. Even though the word child, children, parent, mom, dad, none of that's mentioned there. But when we think about conformity to this world, what are some things, and this is, this is a, not just a, a hypothetical question, what are some assumptions that the world makes about parenting? What are some motivations? And again, we'll kind of do the classic man on the street. Take a microphone down to the mall or to a festival here in Conroe. What are, what are things that the, the world would say, these are your motivations for parenting? Science has it all figured out. But what motivates a parent? I mean, because the thing is, the reality is, we have unbelieving neighbors who live in our neighborhoods who are good parents. You want your kid to be successful, okay? That's a, that's a motivation. You want your kids to have a good life, okay? I'm sorry? Yeah, there's, there's an assumption that that's, my child is basically good, but what, what, what drives a parent? What motivates a parent to spend time to teach their child, to train their child, to instruct their child, to correct them? What motivates a parent to do that? Want to behave in front of other people, okay? What else? 
Personal legacy. Yep. Sure. Yep. I want to see them get hurt. I want them safe. Yep. I want to keep them safe. I want to protect them. Any of those things all by themselves are not bad, are they? Those are not sinful things necessarily. But as Christians, we are commanded not to be conformed to the world. We are, we are commanded to think differently, distinctly from the world. So, we need tools. The tools that we have are first doctrinal before they can be practical. And we need orthodoxy, as the saying goes, before the orthopraxy. We, we need the meat of God's Word in order to evaluate parenting models or educational philosophies or methods, any of those kinds of things. We need the genuine article, the genuine principles and precepts from God's Word so that we will be able accurately, faithfully to evaluate those things. Isn't this what Paul says? He says, this renewal of your mind, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. With respect to the training of your children, do you want to know what is good, what's acceptable, what's perfect? Well, of course you do. As Christian parents, that ought to be our desire. That ought to be what motivates us. And Paul follows that up with, he says, I've been given grace in me. And you think about Paul's history. By his own testimony, he was a violent persecutor, a blasphemer, an idolater. And yet, by the grace given to him, he says, I want to urge you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Is that a parenting verse? It better be. We, we, are, we have a tendency to want to think that we know it all already. In fact, sometimes our pride prevents us from saying, I don't know anything. We had um, the, the boys and I are taking, started two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I remember talking with Vody years ago, and we were talking about just the pastoral implications of jiu-jitsu. I was telling Stephen this story earlier today. And at the end of the class, I like this. The jiu-jitsu, you line up by rank. Not everybody's the same. Some people have earned certain belts, and they're at this end of the room. And the ones that are younger, the kids, they're on this end of the room. And everybody who's in between, you line up, you line up by merit. And there's an opportunity for the instructor to final teaching and questions and things. And one of the things he was telling us is those who are new, white belts, you're just starting out. You have no rank, it's just a belt. And he said, what the hardest thing for a white belt to know is when to admit or when to recognize they're in trouble. You know, in Sunday school last week, we talked about with respect to the doctrine of creation, that the children's catechism, the first three questions, remember the first three questions? Who can give me the first three questions of the children's catechism? Who made me? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? If our culture got those three principles, those three foundational things, how much heartache could our culture avoid? Similarly, we were on the way home the other night, and I was telling uh, Andrew and Calvin, the, the, the instructor said, new people in jiu-jitsu, the hardest thing for them to learn is when they're in trouble. How to recognize when your lights are about to get turned off. Or when your elbow's about to bend in a way it's not supposed to bend. And then from that, know when to tap. And then to know, to turn to the guy who just beat you and said, 
what should I have done differently? And I told the boys, I said, there's, there's, that's profound. And that's a lesson for all of life. If you will know this as grown men, when to know I'm in trouble, when to tap out and say, I'm beaten, I need help, and when to say, or how to say, what should I have done differently? And as parents, could we grab that lesson? Could we acknowledge how much that would profit us as men and women of God who desire to pass wisdom on to our children? So we need these tools. We, we need some ways to be able to evaluate the things that I've read online or the, the things I've watched or the books that I've read, the things that I've heard. Am I able to discern whether or not that is consistent with the Scriptures? And we can't do that without a doctrinal foundation. Just, just this last week, just as I, I Googled, um, I think I Googled top educational models. And I, this, this is just one title of one paper, was um, Montessori Waldorf and Reggio Emilia, a comparative analysis of alternative models of early childhood education. Well, how, do you, how could you read something and, and fully evaluate that if you don't have a doctrinal foundation? How do you know? They may all be good, they may all be great, or they may have serious deficiencies. How, how would we know? And so those are just three. I mean, we could also add to that list a traditional or neo-traditional classroom model, um, classical education, triviums, those kinds of things. But how does a Christian parent evaluate any parenting or educational philosophy? What do these philosophies have in common with a biblical framework? And how might those philosophies or those models or those methods, not just educational, but just parenting in general, how are they consistent or inconsistent with a biblical framework? And then, importantly, what are the consequences if we fail to discern a system of thought that we're pouring into our children, practices in our parenting, ideologies that we've embraced, and we don't realize that we're conformed to the world and we're passing that conformity onto our children, uncriticized, unchallenged. J.C. Ryle, <clears throat> he says this, we live in days when there is a mighty zeal for, every, for education in every quarter. Now he's writing almost 100 years ago. We live in days when there is a mighty zeal for education in every quarter. We hear of new schools rising on all sides. We are told of new systems and new books for the young, of every sort and description, and still for all this, the vast majority of children are manifestly not trained in the way they should go. For when they grow up to man's estate, they do not walk with God. So what should motivate us as Christian parents? What should motivate us to do the work, and it's going to take some work, to, to scrutinize? There at the end of Hebrews 5, the apostle says to the people, said, by now... Some of you ought to be teachers, but the problem is you've become dull of hearing. And he said, it's by reason, I think the King James says, by reason of use, your powers of discernment are exercised to know good from evil. Well, exercise is hard work. It, it, it takes a commitment and a consistency. Are we willing as parents to exercise ourselves for the sake of discernment with our children? So what motivates us as parents to train our children? What, motiv what motivates non-Christian parents. We've talked about that, to raise their children, to provide for them, to instruct them. But as Christian parents, what should be different for us? Um, 
I passed around an outline. If you didn't get that, I think the folder's still over there. should be enough for one for every household. I'm going to look at this three main ideas. This is not exhaustive, but three main ideas. The first and foremost is the glory of God. This is to fulfill our creative purposes. And you've heard me say this before. I'm not smart enough or organized enough to plan all these in advance, but it just so happens in Sunday school today, we were looking at the doctrine of creation and God's specific creation of man, the crown of his creative work. And again, I, I didn't and purposely sync that up with the beginning of the child training class. It just, it just happened that way. But God's word commands his people to do all things to his, own, to his glory. Everything. In fact, to the Corinthian church, Paul says, whatever, even if you eat or drink, something as ordinary and mundane as providing sustenance for your body, he says, do that to the glory of God. Well, to argue from the lesser to the greater. If in those mundane things of just eating a meal... If you're supposed to do that to the glory of God, how much more carrying out this precious, precious stewardship of training our children? In Romans 1, Paul proclaims that the wrath of God is being revealed. It's being poured out, the scripture says, against mankind for one fundamental reason. What's the one fundamental reason that Paul says the wrath of God is being poured out against men? I'm sorry, that did not honor God as God. God has created the world, and he's created it to work a certain way. And when man says, we will do it our own way, God's wrath is stored up for such a man or for such a culture. In Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> in verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So we state this negatively. Our motivation for, as parents, is we want to avoid the wrath of God, right, on the one hand, because we fail to honor him as God, honor him as creator, honor him as the one who made these little ones that he's entrusted to us. But to state it positively, we need to think about what Paul admonished us in Romans 12. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. And so if we think about this affirmatively, if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3. Paul is speaking here about the new man. And again, we have a lot of crossover with Sunday school. <clears throat> For those of you who are here this, this morning in Sunday school, we spent some time in verses 12 through 17. Put on then the, the new clothes, the new garments of righteousness. Put on those things that mark the new man and put off the old things. And Paul closes that section, verse 17, with whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, does that include parenting? Of course it does. Sure it does. In fact, we could even say primarily it does. Now how do I know that? How do I know it's primarily? Close your Bibles for a minute. I'm not going to, I won't, not very many times you're going to hear me say that. Close your Bibles. 
What does Paul say in the next verse? Paul goes to the household, doesn't he? He just says, whatever you do with respect to the new creation, new men in Christ, new women in Christ, the very first thing he does next is he goes to our homes. Why? Why do you think he does that? That's where the proverbial rubber meets the road, isn't it? Basically, if we can't be a new man there consistently and genuinely, are we really new men? Really new women. And so Paul says some really, so we would expect, I mean, if, if let's face it, if we were writing Colossians, thank, thank the Lord we didn't. But if we were writing Colossians, we've just spelled out the glories of the gospel in Christ and talked about the glories of the new man and all the things of the old man that are supposed to be put away. Wouldn't we go to some really religious, big, grand scheme after that? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. World missions is the next sentence, right? Evangelism. Um, ecclesiology. Something big and dramatic. No, Paul goes to the home. Because, again, that's where the rubber meets the road. And he deals with husbands and wives, parents and children, employees and employers, you know, bond servants and, and, and masters. This is the very first place we honor God as God. What motivates us as parents? The very first motivation ought to be the glory of God, because that's what ought to motivate us even in the most mundane things of life. But in particular, with these little ones that God has placed in our care, are we speaking to them, praying over them, modeling for them, being exemplary in their presence regarding the desire to glorify God in all that we do? Does that motivate us as parents? Do our children kind of, in a sense, the old adage, it's caught, not taught, do they catch that from us? If what we believe as Christians does not take root and bear fruit in our own homes, can where do we reasonably think that fruit is going to show? So the first motivation for us as parents, and we, and we can't just skip past this, is the glory of God. Because this is, the, this is our motivation in all spheres, and, and, and with the very sacred trust that God has given to us with these little ones, and these bigger ones and older ones, is to glorify God and to teach them that their whole purpose in life is also to glorify God. That's what they were made for. That was the reason God made them, embedded in them his own image. This is the phrase in the, out of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. That should be our best, our chief, our first motive as parents. But there are other motives too, aren't there? Th that one is, is, is somewhat high and lofty, but it's also very practical and tangible. But here's another motive. You'll see this in your outline, because <laughs> God said so. That's the second motive. Shouldn't our obedience to God also be a motive for us in training of our children? Has God not said to parents, to fathers in particular, train your children, discipline your children? So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, 
writing to all of Israel and doing so in the context of their homes. You shall teach these statutes diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now it's not giving us a fourfold formula of exactly what times and places you're supposed to speak about God. What's he saying? All the time. This should just be the air that you breathe and exhale among your children is the things of God. You're teaching them the statutes of God. You're teaching them that this, and, and this, this, this is what's known as the Hebrew Shema. It begins with, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is our God. That's a confession of faith, isn't it? They were told to teach their children their confession, their doctrinal propositions about who God is. So as we're, even with the very youngest children, we can speak to them about the very nature of God. And it starts with things like a children's catechism. Who made you? God made you, honey. He made you. made you just like you are. He made you special. He made you beautiful. He made you just this way. And he put you by his kind providence in our home. And mommy and daddy are glad about that. And we can talk about those things from the very earliest ages, before they're able even to repeat those back. We can speak to them about those very things. This, this is how the world really is. Paul picks up the same thread in Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative instruction. But positively, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, he qualifies that. It's the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And sometimes Christian parents will be all about discipline and instruction of the world of politics, of economics, of finance, of mathematics, and all the good subjects. But specifically here, the command is given to fathers, but to parents comprehensively. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 22, verse 6. And I'm just giving you a little bit of a sample platter of the commands given to us as parents to train our children. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, as plainly as I know how to state this, God commands us as parents to consider the training of our children as, as a sacred stewardship. So one of our motives as parents to do these things is because Daddy said so. The very things we want to teach our children... Do this because Daddy said so. We have to obey the same thing, don't we? Our Heavenly Father has given us these commands. And we dare not neglect them. And we, if we do neglect them, it's at our own peril, and worse, our children's peril. The stakes are high. God has placed these children in our care, and we are obligated to Him, both as our Creator, to honor Him as God, Romans 1, but also as our Redeemer. As our Redeemer, as the one who has saved us, motivated by gratitude to Him, we want to train our children according to all that His Word teaches us. John, uh, in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, how can a, a man say, I am a Christian, I love the Lord, but I have no interest in training my children? I have no interest in sacrificing for that. I have, no, I have no interest in doing the hard work, and it is hard work, isn't it, to train my children. 
to love them sacrificially. So parents, this is, a, this is a command, but it's also a very precious promise because Jesus says, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Listen to what he says next. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's a parenting verse. And it's what we need to claim, isn't it? If we love him, we will keep his commandments, including the commandments to train, disciple, discipline, chasten, instruct, catechize. All those things are our children, but we also claim the promise that he's with us. He will send his spirit to help us, to comfort us. As parents, how often do we need comforting? Because parenting can be discouraging. There are times when it's been a rough day. Kids have had a rough day. Um, either because they've been ill or tired or just because they're just particularly honoring today for whatever reason. And it's been tough. And we, need, and, and it, and it can be, we can be tempted to discouragement as parents. Is this ever going to work? I'm not seeing any fruit. And we need the Spirit to comfort us in that and to remind us God's promises are true. He will not fail. And He is faithful to the means that He has appointed for us. J.C. Ryle once again, listen to this. This is... I, I, I wish as a young, a young father I had known this. He's commenting on the, the command in Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go. He said, remember, children are born with a decided bias towards evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. The mother cannot tell what her tender infant may grow up to be, tall or short, weak or strong, wise or foolish. He may be any of these things or not. It's all uncertain. But one thing the mother can say with certainty, he will have a corrupt and sinful heart. It is natural to us to do wrong. Foolishness, says Solomon, is bound in the heart of a child, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. And a child left to himself brings shame to his mother, Proverbs 29, 15. Our hearts, our hearts are like the earth on which we tread. Leave it alone, and it is sure to bear weeds. If, then, you would deal wisely with your child, you must not leave him to the guidance of his own will. Think for him. Judge for him. Act for him, just as you would for one who is weak and blind. But for pity's sake... Give him not up to his own wayward tastes and inclinations. It must not be his likings and wishes that are consulted. He knows not yet what is good for his mind and soul any more than what is good for his body. You do not, as a parent, let him decide what he shall eat and what he shall drink and how he shall be clothed. Be consistent and deal with his mind in like manner. Train him in the way that is scriptural and right and not in the way that he fancies. If you cannot make up your, listen to this, if you cannot make up your mind to this first principle of Christian training, it's useless for you to read any further. Self-will is almost the first thing that appears in a child's mind, and it must be your first step to resist it. What motivates you as a Christian parent? If this isn't part of the, your calculus, you've missed something crucial. See, we hear it at a Reformed Baptist church, or, or we're good Calvinists, right? Until we become parents. 
on one hand, sometimes a good Arminian is, is actually convinced of, of depravity by having children. But on other hands, good Calvinists waffle on this point. They will confess with the most orthodox, yes, I believe in depravity, from the womb. But then the dimples and the smile and the cute, and, and we have such a natural affection for our children that is God-given, it's good, it's right. And yet we will doubt that these little ones, these precious little ones that we love more than we could even have ever imagined before we had children. And we love them. And it's hard for us to realize that the thoughts of their hearts are evil. Their desires are corrupt. Their wills are corrupt. Their affections are... The things that they want. The things that they want to touch. The things that they want to do. The things where they want to go. The things that they want to say are corrupt. They come from a polluted spring. And we can doubt that as parents. Even as good, orthodox, faithful Calvinists, we can doubt that. This should help us to think about our third motivation as Christian parents to train and disciple our children. The third motivation is, is rescue. We want to rescue them. Now, if your son or daughter were in serious physical danger, how many reasons would I have to give you to motivate you to rescue them? None, right? Your, your own natural in, inclinations as a parent would say, whatever it takes, I'm going to go rescue my child. And I, and I plan next time, in our, our Zoom call in two weeks, the second session will be, is entitled Biblical Anthropology of Children. So we're going to examine the human nature. What are these little ones? How do they come to us? But in other words, from the Scriptures, what do we know about children? What's true of their minds, their wills, their desires, and their hearts from the womb? And, and again, I, I don't think there's anything that really tests our theology more than having children. We find out what we really believe. Um, before I had children, I was an expert in parenting. I really was. And you, you didn't believe that. You just asked me. And I, I, I would have persuaded you I was an expert. And then I had them. And realized this is, this is, this is far different than what I imagined. Um, and and find, find myself battling in my own mind about how to, how to parent, how to help them. And I, I had no doctrinal foundation. I wasn't even a believer at the time. But our natural affection, as I mentioned, for our children, it's a great gift, and we love them, and we ought to love them. We cherish them. We want them safe. We want them happy. And, and, and even our pagan neighbors, by nature, generally do that. I mean, there are horrific exceptions, but generally speaking, even your pagan neighbors want good things for their children. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? In, in, in Matthew 7, he says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent instead of a fish? If you, he looks at the crowd, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, Jesus' presupposition is that even pagans will give good gifts to their children. They want good things for their children. Now, the pagan mind doesn't know what's really good, though, does it? So as Christians, are we able to think biblically, to think 
in, with a spirit-filled mind so that we can discern what is actually good and then to pass those true good things on to our children. As Christian parents, are we distinct from our pagan neighbors? Do we believe from the scriptures something about the nature of our children that's fundamentally, fundamentally different than the assumptions that the world makes? For the world, rescue really isn't a motivation for parents, except perhaps rescuing them from you know, a hard life, rescuing them from financial hardship, rescuing them from you know, bullying at school. Or there's, 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 but the world is very limited in what it thinks the child is being rescued from. Ultimately, it's from discomfort or physical danger or inconvenience or emotional distress or, God forbid, boredom. We want to rescue our children from those kinds of things. But as a Christian parent, do we have this concept of rescue in our minds? Do we realize from the moment that we hold that precious little one in our arms for the first time that they are in grave danger? Do we think about that? Do you believe that your child needs to be rescued from something? and that they're in grave danger? Are you convinced that your chief job as a parent is to help rescue an eternal soul from eternal punishment? Bruce Ray, in the, the book that I mentioned earlier, Withhold Not Correction, he tells a story. He's got a, he's got a young son named Nathan. Or, or, when his son was young, his son's named Nathan, they were at a park, and he turned his back, and, the, and his son had climbed the very top step of one of these big park uh, slides. And he's standing below, and the son falls. And he's grabbing at whatever he can grab to rescue this boy from hitting the ground from however many feet up. Well, he's, he's given that as an example, but then this is the conclusion he draws. It's a little bit longer quote, but bear with me. It's, 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 it's excellent. Parents, our children are falling. It's not the ground at the bottom of the slide that waits for them, but their descent is toward hell. They are falling, and our intuitive reaction ought to be to reach out to catch them, to break their fall, to change their direction. We must stop them from their downward descent before we can instill in them the positive principles that will enable them to climb upward once again. In other words, before we teach them safe and responsible ladder climbing, <laughs> we have to catch them. It is in light of this truth that we are to administer discipline. For Solomon says, you shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. The discipline of the home is that force which can change the direction of the child or at least retard the breakneck speed with which he makes his steady descent. It is in the realization of this fact that Solomon can say to us, chasten thy son while there is hope and let and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Proverbs 19.18 Oh, it hurts a parent to administer discipline, and the child cries when discipline is properly administered. But Solomon says to shut your ears against it. Do not let the crying of the child sway you from your God-given responsibility to discipline him. Realize what you were doing when you apply the rod. It may have hurt Nathan when I caught him around the ribs or I caught him around the neck, but he was caught 
And whether it hurt him or not, it spared him from a greater disaster. Do not let the crying of the child sway you from administering discipline because you are sparing him from a greater disaster by administering the rod. It may be that you shall deliver his soul from hell. Now, we can say this with a straight face as Calvinists who recognize God's election, his predestination, his providential rule, and his use of means, and we know as parents we can't save our children. Nod. You, you know that, right? We can't save our children. But it might be that God uses the means of parental correction to restrain that boy, to restrain that girl from grievous sin that will bear consequences in this life and in the age to come. So when we teach our children things like exercising self-control, learning not to just shout whenever you feel like shouting, or to speak when you feel like speaking, or to hit when you feel like hitting, or to steal when you feel like taking something. If we teach them to restrain their flesh in those ways, maybe we spare them from getting fired one day because they mouthed off to an employer. Just hypothetically, you know, you've worked with people who didn't have the self-control that should have been taught to them when they were very little. When they learn how that the world doesn't work in, the, in, in such a way that you are the center of the universe, and you can just say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it. The, the, the youngest toddler needs to learn that the world really is this way. You're not permitted to go wherever you want to go without permission. You're not allowed to do whatever you wish to do without permission. And, and this works its way out. I mean, if, if, a, if a child goes, if, you're, if my children went into to your home and they just presumed that they could go into whatever room they wanted, and just walked in and started opening drawers and things. Is that the way the world works? What are we teaching them? Because we're always training our children for something, either good or evil. And if we teach them that that's the way the world really is, you have, you're entitled to go anywhere you want and explore anything you want to explore. Well, go into your boss's office at work and rummage through his desk drawers and see what happens. Go into the bank. Walk back in the door that says employees only and see what happens. <laughs> the banker laughs. <clears throat> see, the world doesn't work that way, does it? And, and so part of it is if we honor God as God, one of the things we're doing as parents is we're, we're instructing our children on how the world really is. And I've, I've known people that had dogs that were well-trained and children who were not. Who would, who would recognize the folly of allowing a great big German shepherd, for example, to just do whatever it wanted to do. They would recognize, whoo, that's going to be a mess. That's going to be a problem. That's got to be subdued. But the two-year-old child, the five-year-old child, well, they're cute, it's fine, it's, we all kind of chuckle about it, we laugh at it. It's not going to be funny when they're 15. And one of the things that we're, that we're going to emphasize throughout this, this study is with respect to correction. The younger you start, the less force is required. Just when they're really little, not much force is necessary to change their course, uh, either in terms of a little swat or a uh, consequences. But if you don't apply a little force early, you're going to have to apply a much greater degree of force to change a will later on. 
And many of us as adults know that, don't we? We didn't come to faith in Christ until, as our confession says, our riper years. And we had habits that were already set in, sins that were already entrenched. And how much harder was it for us, that process of sanctification? Because we had to undo those things that we had already participated in. So parents, is the rescue of the eternal souls of your children a chief priority? I mean, do you, do you understand that, that role as a parent, as a rescuer? Again, this is where our doctrine gets tested, doesn't it? Do we really believe in depravity? Do we really believe uh, in, in the fact that our, our children are born bound for hell? If our professed beliefs do not bear tangible fruit in the way that we approach parenting, then can we really say we genuinely believe those things? I mean, it's a question for us to ponder. That's, I don't say that to any of you as, a, as an accusation or something. I say that it's just for all of us have to be confronted with that, don't we? And, and we certainly know. And, and, and we ought to claim this and stand upon this, be willing to die on this hill. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that any man has ever been saved, including our children. But I heard someone say one time, I don't, I don't remember, I would give credit if I knew where it came from, it was one of the old dead guys. We depend upon the grace of God alone, but we ought to parent as if the eternal souls of our children actually depended upon us entirely. Again, that's not a doctrinal truth, but it does display the kind of urgency that we ought to have as parents. We ought to live as if it really depended upon us. We ought to parent as if it did, but praise God it doesn't. Right? I'm going to close with one more quote. You have this one printed in your notes, in your outline from Ryle. Precious, he says, no doubt are these little ones in your eyes, but if you love them, think often of their souls. No interest should weigh with you so much as their eternal interest. No part of them should be so dear to you as that part which will never die. The world with all its glory shall pass away. The hills shall melt the heavens shall be wrapped together as a scroll. The sun shall cease to shine. But the spirit which dwells in those little creatures whom you love so well shall outlive them all. And whether in happiness or misery, so to speak as a man, will depend upon you. This is the thought that should be uppermost on your mind in all you do for your children, in every step you take about them, in every plan and scheme and arrangement that concerns them. Do not leave out that mighty question, how will this affect their souls? Brothers and sisters, that's not true just for the little ones. As your children get older and you're making decisions about who their friends are, what kinds of activities they're involved in, what kinds of education they're going to have, whether where, higher education and all those kinds of their vocations. Is their soul, are their souls of chief concern? I mean, Jesus said it as clear as, he, as, as we can have it put to us. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So as parents, and I think he, he 
Pastor Ryle here does not overstate the case in the slightest. This is the thought that should be uppermost on our minds as parents in all we do, in every step we take about them, in every plan, every scheme, every arrangement that concerns them. Do not leave out that mighty question, how will this affect their soul? So this is our motivation as parents. And, and so I, I, hope, I hope you see that before we dive into well, what, I do, what do I do as a parent in this situation or that situation? What about this scenario or that scenario? Uh, do, do we have the proper motivations? Because we can assume sometimes as, as parents, and we think more like Paul says in Romans 12, we think more like the world. And, and our motives are not evil or sinful, but they're inadequate as Christian parents. And, and, and we find that our motivation as parents is really not much different than the world. We want them to be happy, we want them to be safe, we want them to be healthy, we want them to be you know, well-adjusted and socialized and you know, all those kinds of things, which, again, none of those are unlawful or sinful things. But is, is that an adequate motivation for us as Christian parents? And so the Scriptures tell us that all of life is to be marked by a goal of the glory of God. That was the very reason that God made us, was to glorify Him to be in communion with him. So that, that must be our chief and first goal as parents. Secondly, obedience to our head, obedience to our king, who has said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love, my, if you love your children, you will teach them to obey my commandments. Because that's how the world really works. God is not, you know, as, as the psalmist says, I, I've learned that your, your law is not burdensome to me. It was a time as an unbeliever, I chafed against specific commands that God gave. And then as, as a Christian and maturing, you realize, well, turns out God knew what he was doing. This is good. This is, this is profitable. This is fruitful. It's good for, it's good for me and with respect to my glory of God, but it's also good for me and for my family to obey the Scriptures and for our children to know not only is life easier <laughs> if you obey God, but it's more fruitful. It's ultimately a happier life. And so that's, a mo that's, our, that's our second motivation. But, but thirdly, are we motivated by a sense of rescue? D does that shape the way we pray? Does that shape the way the kinds of decisions we make for our children? Does that shape the, the, the way that we speak with them does that shape the way that we organize our home? Does that shape the, the priorities in our home? And so over the next couple of weeks, or the next couple of sessions, we look at next week just the anthropology of children. You know, what does the Bible say about these children? We've touched upon some of that today. But then the, the, the next one after that is, what's, why is parental authority necessary? Why is, God could have designed things in different ways. Why did God design it so that parents have true authority? And how do we think about that? How do we wield that? So we're almost at an hour. Are, are there questions on what we've looked at today? And we may not get to everything, but are there questions? Matthew? Matthew? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure, sure. And and the the order is important. Our, our chief motive should not be uh, you know, the, the material blessings or worldly applause or anything like that. Uh, or even even good things, the, the health and safety of our children. But it is true that when we obey the law, we prosper. Uh, that doesn't mean that this isn't the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, that if we're obedient, that if we have enough faith, that no bad thing will ever happen to us. We don't teach that. But we do teach our children that this is, you, you live in a world that's good, that God designed and made and, and actively rules and governs. If you seek to drive your car down Interstate 45, going north in the southbound lane, that's a dangerous thing because the road wasn't designed to do that. And you will cause no small amount of angst for yourself and other human beings by doing so. But yet, we will recognize the absurdity of that, but then we will give no heed to other commands regarding, um, in today's catechism, the Eighth Commandment. What does the Eighth Commandment require? It's not only about not stealing, it's about working hard, prospering your own estate, and, and avoiding anything that would hinder the prospering of your own estate or your neighbors. But yet, how often do we seek to go against the flow of traffic, so to speak, on those very kinds of principles? God has given us his law, and in his kind providence, we even have some tools like a catechism to help us understand both the affirmative and negative sides of those things. Is that kind of what you're asking about? Absolutely. We, we, and as Christian parents, we have a reasonable hope because God is faithful to means. And so when we follow his appointed means, uh, we, have a, we have a reasonable hope that our children will hear. We know they're going to hear the gospel. We have a reasonable hope that God will give them eyes to really see themselves, ears to truly hear the grace of the gospel and believe it. I think mean, we, we can't, we don't have the certainty. We, we don't have an assurance that our children are elect, but I parent as if they are. 
I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, even as a Reformed Baptist, you know, I'm going to say, I can't, my children, I don't, I don't baptize them because I don't, I don't know that they're in the covenant. In fact, I know that they're not from birth. But I have a reasonable hope that in God's providence, they put them in my home, a place where the gospel is going to be heard, the scriptures are going to be open, they're going to be prayed for, they're going to be around a community of faith who's doing the same. And I believe God is faithful to use those means. Yeah. 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 His, his, yeah, his image of being dangled by a thin filament over the fires of hell is, is a vivid image. Yeah. Amen. All right. Well, we're at an hour and five. Let's, let's close here. And uh, Spencer, do you mind praying for us?